Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at Revelation 12 and 13 tonight. And we're going to look at a lot of passages beyond this, so you'll hold your place here. We'll be going to a lot of passages. We're calling this the Tribulation Playbill. Revelation 12 and 13, I'm calling the Tribulation Playbill. When you go to see a play and you enter the theater, they hand you a small theater program. It's a little booklet called a Playbill. And in the Playbill is the cast of characters. You see a picture, you see a little short bio about who that person is, who they play, and uh, maybe some of their accomplishments. So you get the playbill with the cast of characters. We're going to look at five primary characters during the tribulation period. More specifically, the last part of the tribulation period, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. But we're going to look at five main tribulation characters. And each one has a place in history, and they have a place in the tribulation events that I, I believe will be informative for us as we're learning about Bible prophecy. Let's begin with a word of prayer tonight. Would you pray for me? And, uh, and I'll pray that God will use this. Father, we thank you for your holy sacred word. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecy in your word that tells us about the future. And we're excited because we're on the winning side. And we know that you're going to come and you're going to judge the earth and take over and you're going to rule and reign here on the earth. And we look forward to that. Before then are these tribulation events, Lord, and much going on that you describe. And I pray as we just do an overview of, of what's going on and who's involved, Lord, that you would help me to be precise, concise, clear. Help my voice, please, Lord. And I pray it would be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You have your notes in front of you. First of all, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, we see the woman. We see the woman. And the woman is Israel. Would you write that in your blank? The woman is Israel. It says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. How do we know that the woman is Israel? First of all, because the symbolism in verse one matches an earlier revelation describing Israel. And so the verse will come up on the screen. This is Genesis 37 and verse 9, and this is Joseph's dream, and you'll see in his dream that Jacob is the sun, Rachel is the moon, and there are 11 stars, which are Jacob's brothers. Joseph would make 12, so the sun, the moon, 12 stars. This revelation matches Revelation 12 and verse 1, and so we know the woman is Israel from that. Also, you see in verse 6, that the woman flees to the wilderness, and we know from Matthew 24 and other passages about the tribulation that that is Israel that flees to the wilderness, and there's a place prepared by God to protect the Jews during the tribulation. We know 144,000 witnesses, they are spared, God puts a mark on them, and, and they are not killed, and there's another remnant of believing Jews that are protected by God and they make it all the way 
through the tribulation. They survived the last part of the tribulation, the great tribulation events where 80% of the earth's population or so are killed. They survived those tribulation events and they enter into the millennial reign of Christ. Hold your place here. We're going to go back to Matthew 24. We're going to take time with this because I think it's important to understand once again Israel's place in the tribulation. Dr. Amsbaugh spoke on this. I spoke on this before, but I think we need to look at it again to understand clearly Israel's place during the tribulation. Look at Matthew 24 in verse uh, 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. That, the abomination of desolation, happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And so when you see this happen, when the temple is, is, is made desolate by the actions of the Antichrist, we learn this in other passages, when you see this occurrence, verse 16, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains, a clear reference to Israel. So Matthew 24 and 25 deal with the Jewish place in the tribulation. The Jews and their place in the tribulation. That's the context here. The rapture is not spoken of. The revelation of Jesus is spoken of. The church is, is not in view here. Uh, this, is, this is a Jewish message. Look at verse 20, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, a clear reference to Israel. Verse 21, for then shall be what everyone? Great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. That's describing the last three and a half years of this seven-year period of tribulation. The last three and a half years where the tribulation events are accelerated and the judgments are accelerated, that's called great tribulation. Now look at verse 31. Here's the end of the tribulation. And he, that's Jesus, shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. As Dr. Amsbaugh said, the elect there are the elect Jews. These are the Jews that have survived. He gathers them together, and you're going to see this in another passage, Ezekiel 20, I'll show you later. But he gathers the Jews from around the earth that are scattered during the tribulation from one end of heaven to the other. Look at verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. That's the revelation of Christ where he comes to earth and, and begins his kingdom. Verse 34. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. That's the tribulation generation of persecuted Jews. Those Jews that survive, those, those elect that are gathered, they will not pass away till all this is fulfilled. They survive until the end of the tribulation and they populate the millennial kingdom and receive all their wonderful promises that, that, that came to them uh, many years before. The land promises, the promise of total salvation of the whole nation, the promise of the Messiah ruling them and the earth from the throne of David. They experience all those wonderful promises. This is an important point because the millennium must commence or begin with a total believing remnant. 
The, the millennium must commence with a totally believing remnant. At the end of the tribulation, all unbelievers will be wiped off the earth. They'll be cast into hell. In fact, in the progression of the Olivet Discourse, we see this. I showed you this last time and I went quick, but, and this is my, this is my view, good Bible believer, uh, believing pastors um, have disagreements on, on some of the details here, but um, uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, who is an authority on Bible prophecy, he holds to this view. It's a prominent view, but I'm sharing you, uh, with you what I believe to be true about this. Do you see the progression in Matthew 24 after, after the, uh, the statement that in 31, verse 31, that Jesus comes back and gathers his elect? Then the, uh, the book of Matthew gives three parables Three parables, one is at the end of chapter 24 and two are in chapter 25. In these parables speak of the Jews and their need to be ready for the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. In two of the parables, the Jews are called servants. You have faithful servants and unwise and unfaithful servants who aren't watching for the coming of their Lord. Now this can be applied to the church, but the immediate application is not for the church, it's for the Jews. And so they're called servants. Why? Because they've been given a stewardship of much revelation. You see them called virgins who don't have oils, oil in their lamps in, in the next uh, parable. So you have, you, you have another parable that relates to the Jews who've been given much revelation, but they're not responding to it. That's why the, uh, the unfaithful servants, the foolish virgins are cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 24, 51, Matthew 25, 30, the unprofitable servants are cast into outer darkness and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the judgment of the Jewish people. This is the judgment of the Jewish people which we find in Ezekiel chapter 20, we find in Joel chapter 3, we find in the book of Zechariah. So the Bible comes together on this topic and says at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be a separation of unbelieving Jews with believing Jews. The believing remnant will go into the millennium. The unbelieving Jews will be cast into the lake of fire. Look at Matthew 25, 31. Now we see the judgment of the Gentile nations. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations... The English word nations there is translated from a Greek word ethnos, which almost always is translated Gentile. These are Gentile nations. And when you study the Bible on this, on this, uh, this uh, time period at the end of the tribulation, which I know Dr. Molinix will cover, but when you study the Bible on this, what you come to realize is God judges his people, the nation of Israel, and separates the believers from the unbelievers, he also gathers the Gentile nations and separates the believers from the unbelievers. There's two events that happen in conjunction to one another to judge the Gentile nations. One is the Battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the Gentiles are gathered against Jesus and he destroys them. And then all those that are left, the Gentiles that are left, are gathered together and he judges them. And that's mentioned here. Look what it says in verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them the one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. 
Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, say, Lord, when, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw thee uh, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, that's the Jews, to receive the Jewish witnesses was to receive the gospel. So they were showing their salvation by their treatment of the Jews. And inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, that's the Jews, you have done it unto me. And so the believing righteous uh, remnant of, of, of Gentiles will go into the millennium. Uh, all saved people go into the millennium. What happens to the others? Verse 46, the others are, are going to go away into everlasting punishment. So the, the millennium must commence with a totally believing remnant. Go to Ezekiel chapter 20, everyone. Ezekiel chapter 20. Let me show you the judgment of the Jews in Ezekiel 20. Which matches what we just read. And the timeline. Now, Ezekiel, this prophecy is very challenging because sometimes the prophets are giving immediate future prophecy and then all of a sudden they jump way ahead. And in this case, that's what happens. God is giving prophecy concerning something immediate and then they jump, the prophecy jumps way ahead to the, to the end of the tribulation period. Far future prophecy starts in verse 33 of Ezekiel 20. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And we know that comes in the millennium. So this is the end of the tribulation leading into the millennium. Verse 34, and I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries. There's Matthew 24, 31, which we just read. Wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. Those are tribulation events and the battle of Armageddon and all of that. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will plead with you face to face. Joel 3 tells us that the place he's going to do that is the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Je Jehovah judges. And so it's there God judges. Je Joel chapter 3 tells us God judges the Gentiles and the Jews. He pleads with the Gentiles and judges them and with the Jews. Look at verse 36. Speaking of the Jews, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. Here we go, verse 37. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, like a shepherd would do, uh, and, and he would use this to determine his sheep as they would go into the fold. I think that's the imagery here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rule, a rod of judgment. They will pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Only the believers will pass through to the millennium. Verse 38, and I will purge out from among you the rebels. So all the rebels, all that will not, did not wait for the coming of the revelation of Christ, they did not receive Christ in the tribulation, they're all purged out. Keep reading. 
And them that transgress against me, I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter the land of Israel, and you shall, not, and you shall know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, go ye, serve ye every one his idols, and hereafter also, if ye have not hearkened unto me. But pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land serve me. So God is going to purge out the rebels and those that enter in are all believers. And this, this, this is a promise that we find in Jeremiah 31 related to the new covenant as well. A new covenant promise that all the Jews will serve the Lord in, at, at the outset, on the onset of the millennium. All the Jews will worship the Lord. All the Jews will be believers as they enter into the experience of the full fruition of their covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant. They will finally and fully possess all of their land, which the Bible says is from the Nile to the Euphrates. They haven't come close. And right now they're in a small part but in that day, they will finally fully possess all of their land from the Nile to the Euphrates. That's the Jews, the woman. Go back to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. This is the woman, the Jews, who are protected by God. The believing remnant are protected by God, many of them to experience the, uh, the millennium as, as normal human beings. Not glorified saints, normal human beings who are ushered into the thousand-year reign of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And God has to prepare a place for them in the wilderness and feed them there for three and a half years so that they survive. So we see the woman, our first character in the playbill, Israel. Now we see the child, the second character, and that's Jesus, the child of the woman Jesus, look at verse 2. And she, that's the woman, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. The child would be Jesus Christ who comes from Israel. He's brought forth in a time of travail under Roman rule. Verse 5 quotes Psalm 2-9, which speaks of the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron. So this is Jesus. He offered the kingdom to the Jews. They rejected it. They crucified him. But he said to his disciples before he was crucified, I will come again. So there's a postponement to the kingdom on earth. He said, I'm coming a second time and I'll set it up then. And so he died. He rose again. He spoke to his disciples and then he ascended into heaven, and we're waiting this time while he will once, uh, once and for all rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, let's be clear. Write this in your notes. Jesus is the main character during the tribulation period. Jesus is the main character. Turn a few pages before this to Revelation 5, and we see this fascinating passage concerning Jesus in the, uh, in the tribulation period. Revelation 5. And we see this awesome scene in heaven that John describes. 
Revelation 5, 1, and I saw in the, in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written, within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, Behold, the, what's the next word? The lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. In verse six, and I behold and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a, what's the next word? A lamb. As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. I can't explain everything here. I don't have time, but let me go quickly. There's this book. God's sitting on the throne in heaven. He's holding a seven-sealed book or scroll. And this book, we understand, declare, contains the, uh, the details and the declarations of the tribulation judgments upon the earth. The book has writing on the inside and outside, which, which intimates to us there's no room for addition. It's sealed. It contains God's sovereign plan. No possibility of re revision. John sees the book and, and he weeps because no one's there to open the book. No one's found worthy. And it seems as if there's a delay that occurs until the one who is worthy comes to break open the seal. And this great one is called a lion and a lamb. He's called both a lion and a lamb. A clear reference to Jesus. But why the contradiction of terms? A lion, which speaks of majesty, rulership, strength, and the power to judge and a lamb, which speaks of meekness and innocence and weakness. And one who gave himself to save us. The power to judge, the one who came to save. The judge, the savior. The lion, the lamb, Jesus. Jesus, the only one worthy the only one with the character, the only one with the credentials, the only one who could match these descriptions, it's Jesus Christ. And he comes and he opens up the seals. And Jesus is the one who pours out the judgments on the earth. Jesus is the one who's pouring out the tribulation judgments. Oh, there are means that are used. There are channels that are used. But make no mistake, Jesus is the one pouring out the judgment on the tribulation time period. So Jesus opened the seal judgments during the tribulation. Also, he comes at the end of the tribulation to conquer Satan and the kingdoms of, of this world so he can set up his kingdom. He rules with a rod of iron. That's our second character. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. We see the woman, we see the child. The woman is Israel, the child is Jesus. 
Now we see the great red dragon, which is Satan. The great red dragon, which is Satan. And so let's look at verses 3 and 4. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. This is speaking initially of when Satan uh, led a rebellion. And the dragon stood before the woman, Israel, which was ready to be delivered. This goes all the, actually goes all the way back to Eve as well. For to devour the child as soon as it was born. There, there's this, there's this, there's this uh, theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And that is Satan is out to destroy the woman and the child, her seed. Satan leads this rebellion that causes a third of angels to fall. And now that he's on the earth, he's directing his attention to destroying the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, there's this first implied reference to Jesus and this great conflict against Satan. The, the names aren't mentioned, but we have the seed of the woman Jesus and then the, 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 the snake and Lucifer and Satan, we understand, is going after the seed. And so from then on, we see that Satan is trying to destroy the seed that will lead. We, we understand the seed compounds and becomes the nation of Israel, which will lead to the individual seed who is the Messiah, Jesus. And he's trying to destroy Israel and that child in particular when he comes. And so in Genesis chapter 6, Satan tries to corrupt the seed through intermarriage. In the book, book of Exodus, Satan tries to keep the seed from their land and destroy them in captivity and bondage in Egypt. In the book of Esther, Satan tries to annihilate the seed in captivity through the Persian king. And then in the beginning of the gospel narrative, we read about an attempt by Herod to kill the individual seed by killing all the male infants. Was Satan successful, everyone? No, he wasn't. Praise God. Jesus lived. And then on the cross, now Satan, I might, Satan's deluded. He might have thought that he, he had something going there. But on the cross, Jesus conquered Satan. He rose again from the dead. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Satan then has sought to destroy Israel. He, did, he was not able to destroy Jesus, so he has, he has moved his attention toward the woman. Look at Revelation 12 and verse 13, everyone. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, Satan is not allowed access anymore during the tribulation to heaven. He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So... He, he couldn't get Jesus, but he goes back after the woman. He goes back after Israel. So during the tribulation period, you've got these tribulation judgments poured out on the earth by Jesus, but he's protecting a remnant of Jews. And then you've got Satan going after the Jews. He's trying to kill as many Jews as possible. By the way, Satan has been working to destroy Israel since Jesus ascended into heaven. In AD 70, 
the Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. Even though there remained a Jewish presence there, the region was renamed Palestine after Philistia, home of the Philistine people. The Muslims invaded Israel and formed a strong settlement there. Of course, they have their dome. Um, they have their mosque there uh, where the temple grounds were. The Turkish Ottoman rule later laid claim to Israel. In World War II, you know, Hitler tried to kill as many Jews as possible and he killed over six million. Six million. Still, the Jews survived. <laughs> the Turks, the Muslims, <laughs> the Romans, Hitler, and the Zionist movement grew as dispersed Jews sought to join once again into Palestine and form a Jewish state, and they're there today. And they're still under constant attacks. They're still being persecuted today, and they will be during the tribulation period. That's why God says, flee to the wilderness, I'll protect you there. Run! I'll protect you there because Satan's after you. Satan's after you. He's after the woman and the child. So let's go back to Revelation 12. We see the first three characters. We see the woman, Israel. We see the child, Jesus. We see the great red dragon, Satan. Now look at this fourth character. He's alluded to at the end of verse 1 in chapter 12. Look at this. He's alluded to here. Fascinating. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Excuse me, I'm sorry. It's uh, at the end of verse 3, but let's read through this. Uh, with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars, and she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered, which we described. Here it is, verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, now look at this, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So there's this other character who's mentioned here subtly in this passage. Because this matches Daniel's description of this man of sin, which we know to be the Antichrist. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 1, we see the same imagery related to this man, and he's called the beast. Look at verse, chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Here it is, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So verse 3 of chapter 12 and chapter 13, verse 1, connects Satan to the Antichrist. Why? Because the Antichrist is filled with Satan. Satan is doing his work in part through this man that he fills and empowers to do his work, the Antichrist, here called the beast. And if we connect this to Daniel's vision, we realize that this man comes out of the fourth world empire, which we've already learned is a revived Roman empire. This man rises out of a revived Roman empire during the tribulation period. And so you have this in your notes. The connection to Daniel's prophecy indicates the Antichrist, the beast, shall rule from a revived Roman empire. Remember, Daniel 
describe this, this image and, uh, and uh, the, the, the final part of this image was this last world empire that would be divided into two parts and they would be weakened parts. And we know that the Roman empire divided into a western part, which capital was in Rome, the eastern part, the capital was in Constantinople. So you had the Romans, you had the Turks, and it was divided. It was, it was still existing in some form, but it was weakened because it was divided. And Daniel describes that. You say, but Pastor Zach, I know my history. The Roman Empire was overthrown, you know, completely, and the Turks were conquered as well. Yes, but the popes, the Roman Catholic popes, which were the religious arm of the Roman rule, starting with Leo I, began to exercise dominance over the world, at least the Western part, the Western world. In fact, Leo and other popes borrowed the term Pontifex Maximus from the Roman Caesars. Where did they get that term, Supreme Pontiff? They borrowed it from the Roman Caesars. Why? Because they viewed themselves as Caesar. The popes viewed themselves as the vicar of Christ on earth and therefore to exercise rule over the earth, not only religiously, but civilly. Charlemagne understood this. He comes along in 800 AD to revive the Roman civil authority in cooperation with Catholicism. In the Middle Ages, the Germans believed themselves to be an extension of this western branch of Roman rule. They called their leaders Kaiser, which is a form of the word Caesar. The term Tsar was also used by the Bulgarians, Serbians, Russians, which is de derived from the old term Caesar. All of these people believed themselves to be an extension of Roman rule, some the Western branch, some the Eastern branch, and of course, through it all, the Roman Catholic Church has exercised civil authority down through the centuries, working with governmental leaders to control whole countries. My point is simple. The Roman Empire has always existed from its inception. It's still around today. It's weakened. It's weakened but it's still around today. And Daniel's prophecy is true. It's gonna exist in a weakened form, and then in the tribulation, out from this, this revived Roman Empire will rise the Antichrist. He will bring it all together. He will bring the whole world together. He will call for worship to himself. And this man is filled with Satan. The beast will lead a one-world empire seated in Rome. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 describes this, this, this kingdom seated in Rome. And today, if you were here for my last session, we're excited because here's what we see. We see that one-world government developing in our day. Do you see it? It's all coming together. It could be on the horizon. The beast may be a boy today. <laughs> the Antichrist might be alive on the earth. I'm not setting dates. I, Jesus could wait another thousand years, but it certainly seems like tribulation conditions are developing and the one world government is coming together. And this beast, this Antichrist will rise up on the scenes on the scene during the tribulation, during these earthly events. He'll bring peace to the earth. He'll bring peace to Israel. 
Then at the middle of the tribulation, he'll show himself for who he really is, the enemy of God and the enemy of Israel. One more character tonight, one more character. We see another beast. We see the beast, the Antichrist, filled with Satan, who's the great red dragon, who's going after the woman and the child, Jesus and Israel, in the tribulation. We got all this going together in the tribulation. Jesus pouring out judgment, Satan going after Israel, Israel in hiding, the beast rising up on the scene, this, this one world ruler who's filled with Satan. Now we see this other beast. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. And we're going to look down through verse 18. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell thereon to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great, what everyone? He doeth great what? Wonders. He does great wonders. Miracles. Amazing miracles. So that he maketh fire come down from heaven. Sounds like Elijah on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Folks, this reminds us that just because a miracle is taking place doesn't mean it's coming from God. Satan can do miracles. And Satan's working through this, this final character here, the other beast. Look at verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Oh, I missed list 14. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, an idol, an image, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused us all, all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and, or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that understandeth count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score, three score and six. 603 score and six. 600. 66. So this, this is a, a, another beast who works in association with the first beast. A, and what we come to understand as we read, com, complete uh, this revelation, we read further in the book of John's revelation, that the first beast, the Antichrist, is a, mainly a political ruler. The second beast is a religious ruler. Write that in your notes. So the first beast is a political ruler. The second beast is a religious ruler. In fact, other places in the book of Revelation call him the false prophet. So you have Satan working with the Antichrist and his false prophet. This association completes the formation of an unholy trinity. Isn't Satan an imitator? So he creates his own trinity. In fact, he has, he has the beast 
die and rise from the dead. He has the false prophet who's calling attention to the Antichrist and calling people to worship him just like the Holy Spirit calls our attention to Jesus and calls us to worship him. That's his function in the Trinity. So you have this complete invitation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the real Trinity, and Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet forming this false Trinity. An imitation of the function of the Godhead. <laughs> Is Satan deluded or what? And this false prophet, he uses miracles and wonders. Miracles. And the great miracle that he produces, we see in verse 15, he makes this image or this great idol representing the worship of the Antichrist, the beast, and he makes the image to speak. And because of this and other miracles, there's this strong delusion in the world. Not only this, but you notice at the end of the passage, but people worship this image and their mark of identification connecting them to this false worship is a mark. Um, this, this 666 mark. Something on their head, forehead, or on their hand. This mark allows them to buy or sell goods. So there's worldwide economic control exercised by the Antichrist, and you can only buy or sell if you have the mark on your hand or your forehead. Why on your hand or your forehead? Because these are the most accessible and visible parts of your body. It's pretty simple. And so I find it interesting that this kind of an identification is being used today. It's being used today. Companies right now are in the United States are talking about using marks or embedded microchips on these two areas of the body to keep track of all their employees. Credit companies, credit card companies today in the United States and around the world are talking about, about using face and hand scanners to replace cards. You won't have to pull out your card at the grocery store. You just walk in and it'll scan. You want to pay for something, you just go like this or your head, it'll scan your head. Countries, whole countries today I, this was a simple study online. You could study it yourself. Just, just, just look it up. Whole countries today are, are talking about using embedded microchips on those two areas of the human body to carry all personal data, including your vaccine status. How many of you knew that? Did you know that they're talking about this today? Is that the mark of the beast? I don't know. Is it, is it leading to? I don't know, but it's, it, it is ironic, isn't it? It is very interesting that we're in a day where people are talking about this openly. Not going, hey, we shouldn't be talking about this. This looks like the mark of the beast type of thing. No, they're just talking about it openly. This would be a great way to keep track of people. I'm glad I'm not going to be here, all God's people said. You won't keep track of me. I'll be up there. Amen. Everybody got your rapture helmet ready? It could happen any moment. It could happen in a moment. Conditions on the earth are developing just like the Bible said. 
It's all coming together. A worldwide economic system, one world government, the need for peace in Israel. Identification of all people, cashless society, you name it. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. And this mark on your head or on your hand contains a number. It's the number of the beast, 666. 666. What does it mean? Well, the superstitions and speculations are endless. A good guess would be that in ancient times, letters had numerical value. Look at verse 17. It's the number of his name. It's the number of his name. So if you ascribe numerical value to letters, you can come up with his name. That's what it seems to say there. Now, what, what language? Who knows? <laughs> the theories and speculations have been numerous throughout the centuries. Some believe that this related to Nero Caesar in the first century because his name in Hebrew adds up to 666. Martin Luther famously called Pope Leo X the Antichrist. And people configured his name to end up 666. Napoleon's full name was configured to equal 666. Hitler's full name was configured to equal 666. This one fascinated me. Ronald Wilson Reagan. I remember when this was happening. In fact, a book was written about it. People were saying, Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist. I'm like, Ronald Reagan? Yeah, he looks nice, but watch out. I was like, he's the, yeah, I, I agree with Pastor Redland. He is my favorite president. I'm like, Ronald, where'd you get that from? Ronald, six letters. Wilson, six letters. Reagan, six letters. <laughs> oh, oh, not only that, he has this fatal wound that he lives from. His press secretary also got shot in the head and he survived. After he survived, in the last year of his presidency, he did a peace deal with Israel. Oh, and this is the big one. Look it up, folks. When Ronald and Nancy Reagan retired, they retired to live on 666 St. Cloud Road in Bel Air, California. That's it! He's the Antichrist! Nancy soon changed the number on their house, but it was 666. Look it up. 666 St. Cloud Road in Bel Air, California. And people were going, that's it. He's the Antichrist. Of course, he died and he's not the Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist. I think anybody's name could be configured to be the Antichrist. I'm having a little fun here. But uh, the conspiracies and the speculations are, are wide and varied. But I do believe this. He could be on the earth right now. The beast and the false prophet are filled with Satan himself. They are extremely powerful. Stronger than all of us combined. They are filled with the power of Satan. The greatest created being of God. The highest created being of God. He's powerful than all of us combined. But yet, 
this passage tells us his beast and his false prophet are still men. 666 is called the number of man, verse 18. It's the number of man. In the Bible, we see this great theme related to the number six. Man was created on the sixth day. Man is told to work for six days, rest on the seventh. A Hebrew bondservant under Jewish law could only serve for six years. A field under Jewish law could only be sown for six years. Goliath was six cubits and a span. His spear was 600 shekels in weight and he had six armor pieces. By the way, we have six armor pieces and I find this interesting even though this isn't inspired the chapter designations but our six armor pieces are found in Ephesians 6. I'm telling you, despite that stretch there, the Bible is amazing with its typology. And the parallels and typology related to the number six are amazing. So six reflects the limitation of human labor. Six reflects the condition of human servitude. Six in the Bible reflects the incapacity of human safety. And six, as it relates to Goliath, represents the ultimate in human power and strength, which is no match for the power of God. All it took was one smooth stone to knock Goliath down. All God's people said. All it took was one smooth stone to knock Goliath down. Guided by God. And all it's going to take at the end of the tribulation is one word by Jesus Christ to bring down this, the rule of Satan, his beast, and his false prophet, and all the armies of the world. All it's going to take is one word. The same word, the same mouth that spoke the universe into existence will destroy Satan, his beast and false prophet, and all the armies of the world with a word. That's the power of God. Jesus, at that time, will save Israel and usher them with all the redeemed into his thousand-year kingdom on earth. And Dr. Mullinex is going to come for the next three Wednesdays and speak to us about the beginning of the millennium, the millennial period in our existence there, and then the eternal state beyond the millennium. And there's a lot there. We're looking forward to hearing from him. It was my honor to talk about the rapture and the tribulation. What are we to do with all this? These three lessons starting with ready for the rapture and then the tribulation conditions and the tribulation characters. What are we to do with all this? I want to leave this with you tonight. Thank you for listening. Number one, be ready for the Lord's return. Are you ready? Are you ready? He that hath this hope in him purifies himself. If you have the hope 
the confident expectation that Jesus could return at any moment to take his church, then you'll be ready. You will purify yourself and you'll want to be found working for God. Putting your best effort into kingdom work. Living for God. Serving God with your whole heart. It could happen any moment. And I hope I've been able to impress upon your heart that all of us, including myself in the room, need to be ready for the Lord's return. He could delay his return, but it could happen any moment. And it seems like things are setting up. All history is moving to a point of conclusion. And we must be ready. Number two, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. They deceive many. They can use miracles. They, they, they speak like they're speaking for God. They make predictions and prophecies not according to Scripture, not in line with Scripture. They draw attention away from Jesus and to themselves and their revelations. And the Bible says there's, there'll, there'll be, there'll be a, an acceleration of this kind of activity before the Lord comes. There'll be many who are out there deceiving people. Know your Bible. Don't be deceived. And last of all, be prayerful. Be ready, beware, be prayerful. Be prayerful so that we don't settle for six when we can have seven. Don't settle for the work of man in our day. Here at Campus Church, in our work of evangelism and discipleship, in all that we're doing here, we shouldn't settle for six. What, what only man can do when we can have the power of God at work in our lives to do his work in this world until he comes. And so we pray to him and say, God, do your work through us. Let it not just be us. Take us beyond us. We want to see your work through us until you come. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you for your prayers. The voice made it. Thank you. I hope this was more than an academic exercise for you. I hope it was interesting and informative, and I hope you learned something. And it is interesting. And the details are all fascinating. And there's more to come in the next three Wednesday nights. But I hope it's more than an academic exercise. I hope God is working this in your heart and changing you and growing you. I know he's done that for me as I've been studying this again.